0: He has been someone interesting in the regimes of the Federal Reserve in Philadelphia at AEA, Michael McKee and James Bullard.
1: Good morning to everybody on Bloomberg Television and Radio Worldwide from frosty Philadelphia. According to the feels-like temperature, about six degrees. So we really thank Jim Bullard for getting up early this morning and joining us here slogging through the uh, snow and sleet and uh, high winds. Uh, You're one of the few people that seems to have made it to Philly.
2: Well, I'm originally
1: from Minnesota,
2: so this is nothing. (laughs) (laughs) This is
1: true. You're well known for your regime
2: view of the
1: economy. You're the guy with the dot at the bottom of the dot plot because you don't think there's any reason to raise rates. The economy is picking up. Uh, We're starting to see a few wage gains. Uh, We're going to get tax cut stimulus of one sort or another. So are you any closer to changing your regime and then looking at the need for additional rate uh, increases?
2: well we're certainly keeping our eyes open on this but i think on the tax cut issue the um, I, you know i'm very much less of a, a person that thinks that a lot of deficit spending you know has a lot of impact on the economy or if it does it's usually temporary so i think the interesting part about the tax cut is whether it will drive productivity higher in the u s drive business investment higher in the u s and if it does i think we could get some gains out of that because that would Move up the trend growth rate for the U.S. economy, so that would be good if we can get that. But I feel like for now we can be wait and see as far as monetary policymakers on that. And also in the in the trend growth world, a couple of tenths on the trend growth rate is a big deal. But in the world of watching GDP from quarter to quarter, a couple of tenths doesn't really register. So, um, so I think it'll be hard to. Disentangle uh, over the next couple of years whether you're getting a couple tenths on the trend growth rate or not, and uh, if you are, that would be important. But uh, it'll be it'll be hard to disentangle it from the data. So you're still locked into the same regime and no rate moves. I th- we're we we've got the low regime, but you know we're certainly keeping an eye open. <clears throat> I think my baseline case is that we're still in the same regime. I, I think there's some possibility that this could light a fire under investment and uh, really drive growth higher and if that happens uh, I'd certainly take, take note of that and, and adjust policy appropriately. Well that begs the question of what
1: your growth forecast is for 2018.
2: You know for 2017 we were surprised at the upside on growth. It, it now looks like the first half was just a little over 2% but the second half now looking like it's gonna come in at three percent so you're gonna get two and a half or maybe a little better for the year and uh, this is in a world where maybe the trend growth rate is only only two percent so this is good we're late in the expansion so I think the n- the natural thing to forecast is that you would slow down uh, from here but then you've got this uh, this tax effect coming on so maybe maybe you get a little bit from that so so we're keeping we're, we're still in the low twos for uh... for twenty eighteen and then slowing down the trend as you go forward well it
1: raises a the question then of whether we're going to get any inflation of any significance any
2: acceleration that would create a need for the fed to move faster or more steeply. yeah i think on inflation uh... we're below target uh... we really made no progress in the last two years toward our inflation target uh, at least based on uh, uh... smooth type measures of inflation uh... core PCE, less food and energy, is one and a half year over year. That's a low number. Uh, It's the same as it was in 2015. Unemployment went below 5% in the fall of 2015, so we've been two years in the force and uh, really haven't made any progress at all. So I don't really think we're getting the kinds of Phillips Curve effects that people so emphasize. You know, one time not that long ago, you had the natural rate of unemployment setting up at 5.5%. We're now at 4.1%. We've got a jobs report coming out this morning. We haven't really seen any inflation out of that. And I think, you know, we've got to modify our story about the Phillips curve. It's just not. It's either non-existent or whatever it is, the power there is very, very small compared to what it has been historically.
1: Well, Janet Yellen and Jay Powell have both said, maybe we need to look at the Phillips curve. Maybe we need to look at our models of inflation dynamics. Do you think something has changed that would lead the (coughs) Fed to change the way it looks at making policy?
2: Yeah, if you look at a graph I used yesterday about the disappearing Phillips curve, uh, the you know the coefficient on unemployment has been declining toward zero ever since uh, the 1980s. So that's from an analysis by the Bank for International Settlements in their annual report. So I, I think. Uh, there's widespread agreement on the empirics of this that uh, the, the Phillips curve is you know, very flat and uh, that you know, might ha- there might be no relationship at all at this point. And so I think you really have to pay more attention to inflation expectations in this environment. Those are also low, although I will say they've uh, moved up slightly in the last uh, 60 days or so. So keep an eye on that. What are CEOs telling you about, you're optimistic about the possibility
1: of some additional investment. What are CEOs in your district saying about that and about what they're gonna pay their workers?
2: Yeah, I think the, the CEOs are uh, very um, positive on the tax bill. They think it's, uh, and it makes total sense. It was, it was all focused on corporate tax reform. So the if you're gonna tax the uh, earnings at a different rate, this is gonna raise the value of the company this is why the S&P 500 is up, uh, at least part of the reason why it was up in 2017 in anticipation of this. And so I, I have some sympathy for the idea that you would get this investment boom coming out of this, uh, this tax policy. The only hesitation I have is that the, the firms also had a lot of cash already and they could have done it uh, before and they, they really weren't investing at the same pace they have historically. And so we'll see which way it goes. But as I say, from a, as a monetary policy maker, I feel like with inflation pretty low, I can afford to wait and see and see, see if that really t- happens or not.
1: Well, cap uh, <coughs> utilization uh, is maybe running 2% lower than its historical average.
2: Is anybody in your district telling you we need to expand? Uh, there's certainly some uh, have expansion plans. Uh, there's certainly some that uh, you know do want to go ahead. I cu- I could see the corporate sector saying to themselves, "This is a good chance to make uh, make money and take a you know take a risk on the big billion dollar project that I wasn't going to do before." and they may go ahead, may well go ahead with that. But I'm, I'm in wait-and-see mode to see if it really happens. The other aspect of the tax bill that has concerned some
1: of your colleagues is the large deficits it will create. Are, are you afraid of a, a crowding out a rise in interest rates, a, a, a lack of capital <clears throat> available for the private sector?
2: No, I mean the 1.5 trillion number is over 10 years, so you're talking 150 billion per year. There's some front loading. Um, I'm not a big one for uh, the, you know, the effects of deficits on rates. I think those are that's hard to find. Um, uh, Also, it's a global environment, so you've got this uh, this global debt story. You have a shortage of safe assets globally. Uh, that's having a big impact. You've got low rates around the world. That's having a big impact. So um, I think the, the biggest issue with rates is the, uh, that the 10-year has traded in a range for quite a while, uh, quite a few years here. Uh, I guess today it's maybe 240-something. Uh, um, and then you've got the two-year rising pretty dramatically, so the yield curve's flattening here. Are you concerned about that? Some people are worried about inversion.
1: You suggested that if the Fed goes too far in 2018, we could see that.
2: Yeah, the 10-year, 2-year spread is now under 50 basis points. And uh, the reason it's falling is because the, the Fed is raising rates. So I'm not very interested in trying to raise rates all the way to the point where we invert the yield curve especially with inflation below target. I mean, if inflation was 3% and headed to 4%, i would be all over it, and I'd be, I'd be wanting to uh, get out in front of that. But we haven't made any progress on inflation in the last two years, you know, even with the low unemployment rate. So I think, uh, I think this yield curve issue is important uh there are a lot of opinions about it but we should uh, we should definitely be looking at it we should give it due consideration and we should have that debate now not later this year when it's even flatter
1: well do you think that it is a sign that a recession is imminent
2: well it it has predicted the last three recessions uh, I have a graph on that as in a December speech um, you know there's well, a lot Well, do you of- think
1: a recession is imminent put it that <coughs> way.
2: Well, certainly not right now. I mean, everything is fine right now. The question is, how are you going to play this through 2018? Are you going to raise the policy rate all the way to the point where you're willing to have a completely flat yield curve or invert the yield curve? Now, a lot of things could happen. You could raise rates, and it's not a problem because the 10-year rate goes up you know, in tandem and the slope of the, uh, slope of the yield curve stays the same that would be fine if that's what happens. But if you look at the last uh, four years, the, the tenure really hasn't been uh, mo- you know, very high, and you kind of wonder in your mind, how are you gonna get that rate to be meaningfully higher than what it is in the rest of the developed world? Before we let you go,
1: obviously we have to ask about the changes that are coming to the Federal Reserve in 2018. Do you expect any change in policy making or communication
2: under a Jay Powell regime? Uh, I, I don't know what Jay's going to do, uh, but I, I would think any time you get this kind of turnover, that's a great time to re-examine uh, what the committee's doing. Uh, I think Jay would have probably have some sympathy for that, but I don't know what direction he would... I would, certainly wouldn't want to pin him down on what direction he's actually going to go in. but uh... we've got dot plot for instance uh... you've got press conference issue Uh, so i think there are are things that could be considered here
1: there's a big conference in washington on monday asking whether the two percent inflation target is still a worthwhile uh, fed policy how would you feel about that
2: yeah i think the two percent target is quite important and has been very beneficial in keeping inflation low and stable if anything keeping it too low and too stable but um... Yeah, I I wouldn't want to mess with that. I think what we could do is put a process in place where every five years we thoroughly review the inflation target and think about why we have it and and what we think it should be. Bank of Canada does this and I think that's best practice right now. So the Fed could adopt that. But you do that on a calendar basis and and not let it interfere with the day-to-day monetary policy decision. You do it in a way that is a thoughtful couple of day retreat uh, reflecting on it or something like that and then come to another decision about it. If we're going to do a retreat, can you do it someplace warm? Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking uh, <laughs> the southern part of the U.S. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> Jim Bullard, who is originally from Minnesota, so he <laughs> says
1: he's used to this cold. Thanks for joining us today. We'll send it back to you on Bloomberg Radio and Television Worldwide.
3: Alan Kruger goes deeper. I say this every single month. He reads the report in its entirety. It's Princeton University economics professor and world-renowned labor market economist. Alan, it's always great to catch up with you. Just walk me through what you're looking for from today's report.
4: Well, of course, I will look at the headline number, and I uh, expect it will be strong. I think the consensus is the best uh, estimate you have. But under the headline, uh, one looks at labor force participation at different industries, what's happening with manufacturing employment. Uh, I always look at temporary help employment because that's a leading indicator. Uh, Often when temporary help is strong, the job growth in the coming months will be strong as well. Uh, Look at hours, uh, the work week. Uh, Often you could add more labor through increasing hours than hiring more workers. Uh, Then of course uh, look at wage rates because if we're going to get pressure on inflation, I think it'll come from the job market.
0: Uh, Alan Kruger, you are at the American Economic Association, and they will talk there a lot of highbrowed academic economics. If you go back to Solo 1957, he talks about technical change, or maybe it's just simply technology. How do you synthesize all of the new technologies we have into the labor and wage dynamics of this United States?
4: <laughs> you know, it's interesting, Tom. Uh, Bob Solow once famously said you could see the computer revolution everywhere except in the productivity statistics. And I think we probably see the technological change in the job statistics more strongly than we do in the productivity statistics. Uh, I think a major reason why we've seen uh, such weak wage growth for workers with low level of skills, a middle level of skills, is because of technological change. Um, And I think that's probably caused uh, labor share overall uh, to decline, uh, but interestingly, it has not had uh, as much impact as one might expect on productivity growth.
3: Alan, the question for me away from productivity growth, away from all of that it's just how do we know when we're actually at full employment? How do we know and you know a couple of years ago, if I'd said we'd be down at four point one percent and wages would only be trending at two and a half percent, I don't think many people would have expected that. How do I really know when the u s Economy is is at full employment.
4: Well, first of all, Jonathan, I think we need to look more at real wages than at nominal wage growth because there are some external factors that are keeping price inflation low, and we are seeing a pickup in real wage growth. It's been over percent uh, for the last say three four years. So um, I think the job market is getting tight. Is it too tight? Um, I think that's a much more difficult question to, to answer. Uh, And I think there are also some forces in the economy today that are suppressing wages that we didn't have before. I'll just name two. Uh, First, uh, the federal minimum wage remains stuck at $7.25 an hour, where it's been since uh, 2010. Um, 18 states are raising their state minimum wages this year. Uh, Historically, that would put upward pressure on wages when the job market would get tight. And then secondly, we're seeing lots of changes in corporate practices, like no poaching agreements, where uh, 80% of fast food restaurants have an agreement within their chain that they won't hire workers away from another fast food restaurant in the chain. We see non-compete agreements running amok, and I think that's suppressing competition in the job market. And even though we're at levels historically associated with full employment, employers are able to resist the pay increases. Uh,
0: As you well know, Professor Kruger, the classic 1933 In the Depression book by Joan Robinson, The Economics of Imperfect Competition changed how we think about jobs. And part of that is the classic rubber plantation outside Singapore where there's one employer in control of what the labor makes. Now that's not the case of American monopsony But boy, are we getting close to that where labor has no power. Let's start with the why. Why does labor have no power today?
4: I think there are a number of reasons. One, uh, union membership is down to below 7% in the private sector. So union power used to offset employer power, but that's not taking place uh, today the way that it used to. Uh, We're also seeing employers use practices which reduce competition. So you can have monopsony. Monopsony is the flip side of monopoly. It's the job market side of monopoly. But you can have monopsony power when you actually have many employers, as long as each employer is something of an island, as long as it's costly for workers to switch from one job to another. And we don't have perfect mobility today. You know, uh, the, the traditional model requires that if you just change the wage by a tiny bit, workers will leave or or they'll flood uh, into those jobs. And that's not the way the job market works. By the way, you mentioned Joan Robinson. Please. Tom, if you go back and look at that book, it was the first book written that I'm aware of with a color graph. And it showed how monopsonistic power can replace the supply curve in, in the traditional supply and demand model. And what was amazing about it was the red line was drawn in by hand in the book.
0: It's really important, you know, this is what we love about what we do here at Surveillance is trying to pull some of the history of economics, finance, and investment out to you in a modern day where we're so ahistorical. Here's the modern day reality, Professor Krueger. It's a tight labor economy. Businesses are saying we need people, but we can't raise, raise, raise wages. That's baloney. If you need bodies, you raise wages. Why can't that happen?
4: Well, I think what they really mean is they don't want to raise wages. Thank you. I think many employers became accustomed to a situation where there was excess supply, where unemployment was high. They became a bit spoiled where they could choose workers they want uh, at uh, relatively low wages. And now that the job market has tightened, they're looking for ways that they can uh, uh, prevent the pay scales from rising. That's one of the reasons why companies use so many temporary help workers. If, if, if they hit a bottleneck in one area, they'll reach out, they'll outsource, they'll use temporary help, and they don't have to raise the whole wage scale for everybody else. So uh, I think it's more a matter of, of desire rather than they can't pay more. I mean, we're seeing, you just were reporting on how well the stock market's doing. Uh, we're seeing profits doing quite well. Um, It's just that they're not being shared as much as they used to with the workforce.
3: Alan, are you disappointed that corporates who have received a permanent tax cut have chosen to give employees a one-off bonus instead of a permanent material wage increase?
4: Uh, Look, it's not surprising. Am I disappointed? Um, I think that the tax cut goes too far in the corporate tax cut. I think what we're seeing is exactly what you would expect. And it's what we've seen Historically, when we had changes in tax law, which was favorable to companies, uh, the money went out in dividends or uh, was used to raise stock prices and buybacks rather than uh, filtering through, uh, especially to lower paid workers.
3: Do you see any signs of the corporate response so far, Alan, that gives you any confidence that that corporate tax reduction will result in the wage growth that this administration would like to see?
4: Uh, I haven't seen those signs yet. Um, now, by the way, to be fair to the administration, the model that they have in mind is that the tax changes should lead to more investment, more capital, and that'll take time before it leads to higher wages. We'll see if that capital investment takes place, and then we'll see if wage growth takes place.
0: Can I jump in here? I mean, this is no, just Tom, so please, fascinating. please. Please, go for it. My, my chart of the year I had on the VIX and like the slowdown, Professor Kruger, and then I had to go over to Paul Krugman's highly detailed chart on how capital folds into wage growth. And and not to get too nerdy here, particularly on radio, where we love the charts on radio, but uh, Professor Kruger, the basic idea is it's not 1986's economy. It's not even, you know, 19-whatever's economy. It's a new modern economy of international capital flows. What's foreign money gonna do with a better tax environment in America?
4: Well, you know, the way that this corporate uh, tax cut works, there are also strong incentives for American companies to invest abroad because the tax rates they face are going to be lower for uh, income earned abroad. So uh, it's not obvious to me. It's going to lead foreigners to invest more in the U.S. And I think because of the tax bill, we're going to see less infrastructure investment. It makes it harder to state local governments to invest. Let's
0: rip up the script there. You've been in those meetings at the White House. Can you explain to our audience why we can't get better infrastructure in America, whether it's a Democrat or a Republican? It's 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue.
4: Well, uh, we did have an increase during the Recovery Act. So we did have a period in 2009, 2010 where we had a bump up. Uh, And then since then, uh, there's been no support coming from Congress when it comes to infrastructure investment. And we used to say there are no Republican roads, there are no Democratic roads, uh, there's just American roads. But uh, the philosophy of the Republican Congress was to turn every request from President Obama down. And we'll see what happens uh, going forward. But I think it's long overdue that we reinvigorate our infrastructure in the U.S.
3: Alan, there's an argument that we're moving away from a U.S. economy to a blue state versus red state economy. Do you see a divide emerging between the growth that could be achieved in New York, the state of California and elsewhere? And I asked this question because I caught up with the Audi North America president. He said to me he's expecting now flat growth in sales in New York and California and a pickup in a place like Texas and it just made me think that maybe we're gonna see a divergence in within the United States of America from state to state. Is that something you're keeping an eye on? Uh,
4: I- Yes, very much so. And you know, we've had that take place uh, in the past. We've had a lot of investment go in the south where wages were lower. Uh, We've seen California do very well. uh, I think because uh, they uh, had a a policy of uh, investing in people and in infrastructure, Uh, in spite of the high taxes, they've done quite well. I think the tax bill that passed in a very stealthy fashion is going to cause a greater divide across regions in the US. capping the state and local tax deduction at a low level is going to uh, hurt uh, uh, the blue states. Um, What was done to uh, universities is another example, you know, singling out university endowments for a tax. Um, So I think that uh, those those tax reforms, I think, are going to further polarize the country.
0: I think if you look in the small print, Professor, they singled out the Economics Department of Princeton University. <laughs> you get a love that. You know, they're also.
4: They're, they're, <laughs> uh, that, that, that's also the case. If you look at funding for research, it's it's, yeah. it's, it's uh, targeting yeah. economics. See, I agree, that, Tom.
0: This is the price of working with Alan Blinder. Alan Krueger, thank you uh, so much. <laughs> Greatly appreciate it. He's a former chairman of President Obama's Council of Economic Advisers, and we're honored that he attends uh, every Jobs Day. And now we welcome Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg Television Worldwide. We say good morning to you off this jobs report, some of the data that we see moving. And as always, uh, we speak here with William Gross of Janus Capital, uh, uh, as we're thrilled that he's with us each and every uh, jobs day. Bill Gross, good morning uh, to you. I guess it's a fully employed America. Do you see a fully employed America?
5: No, and, uh, you know, as you've talked about in the last 30 minutes, there's a lot of uh, underemployed people that are still out there, perhaps, maybe in the low-wage category, but I don't think we're yet at unemployment. The uh, U6, as opposed to the U3, is, I think, what the critical number is. It it was at 8% uh, last month, and I didn't see that number this month, but it's... It's probably about the same. I I think the important thing, Tom, is wages. Uh, You know, I came in today. The number, uh, the jobs creation fine, it's the wages. It was 0.3 with a revision uh, back down to 0.1, so a 0.2 per month. Um, That's what we're really looking at. If you can get wages going, then... You know, you can get inflation going, okay. which is what the Fed wants to, to get going.
0: Bill Gross, you're enough of an antiquity that you remember technological change. There was a day where you had a Munro trader on your bond desk and Michael Bloomberg showed up with a Bloomberg terminal. You know about technological progress. Is the reason we're not seeing wage growth is because of a new technological progress?
5: Yeah, I think to some extent, you know, um, but, you know wages are a function, uh, obviously, they play back and forth in terms of productivity, and technology plays into that. I think there are other long-term secular factors that have been part of this for three, four, five, uh, maybe even 10 years, and that uh, refers to demographics, and it refers to, you know, deglobalization now, uh, and it refers to, um, you know, a- other factors which tend to dampen wage growth uh, aside from the cyclical types of uh, numbers i think demographics importantly uh, are key we see that in japan and i've seen that for the past decade yeah. where a, a, a static labor force or a declining labor force basically puts a uh, puts a lid on wages and we're beginning to see that right. with the boomers here in the united states
0: i want to go to john farrow here and of course john farrow talking with gary Cohn here uh in the nine o'clock hour let me make this clear folks if one line sticks out in the report it's the collapse of retail employment in America. John Farrell, another negative statistic uh, today on that.
3: Yeah, away from the detail of the jobs report, Bill, I just want to gauge from you. U.S. 2's ten south of 50 basis points at 49 right now. How are you positioned in terms of how you expect the curve to evolve through this year?
5: You know, I, I don't see much flattening. I know, I know that's the fear and the potential for a recession if it flattens. I think that's an old you know, type of model that's sort of out of date. But, you know, what I see is, is that central banks, and not just the U.S. in terms of um, you know, liquidating fives and tens now as they move the other way on QE, but also the ECB as they reduce theirs. And so there'll be more supply in the fives and tens than there are, has been for the last several years, and I think that tends to keep the curve relatively steep. The important thing for me is where are central banks, and certainly the Fed, where they stop in terms of the policy rate and the real policy rate. You had discussions you know, 30 minutes ago about uh, perhaps 1% on the real rate, which would be 3% on the Fed funds rate. I think that's too high. I'm with Kashkari around you know two percent or two and a quarter percent and if you know central banks cut back on those fives and tens then you would see in my opinion a a two uh 46 10 year perhaps now you know moving to 260 65 and and basically uh you know the curve not flattening as opposed to what is expected
3: to be clear though bill do you see an opportunity short in the belly of the curve
5: um, not shorting. I, I don't think there's much there. I just don't think that there's uh, there's a significant tightening coming. You know, the, the critical function, again, is where are our short-term rates? When we had a flat curve during pre-recessions and over the past 20 or 30 years, it's really the function of short-term rates as opposed to long-term rates uh, flattening out that curve. And if short-term rates right. don't move up above a certain <clears throat> real interest rate level, then uh, we don't have that much to
0: fear. Okay, I want to translate what I just heard, folks, as John Farrell went all jargon on us with the belly of the curve. Our camera guy in here, Rami, looked at my belly as we were talking about the belly. (laughs) That's the five to seven year period. Bill Gross, let's make this clear. I believe that means yield up is what you just said and price down. Do we need to prepare for a bond bear market where we see price loss amid this yield increase?
5: Yeah, well, I think so, Tom, and and a bit of a mild one. Uh, You know, I've talked in the past about a 240, 245 level, and we're above that now. I don't know what's happening in the last few seconds. But in any case, um, you know, the long-term secular trend at these levels is about to be broken. And what does that mean? It means that the economy can support itself, you know, with a 250, 275 uh, type of 10-year treasury as opposed to what it required in the past five years. And so, you know, is that a bear market? Should you get out? Uh, what it basically means is, if you hold a ten-year and it goes from 250 to 275, that's 25 basis points. It's got an eight-year duration. Now that's a loss of two points. You lose all of your income. And so, bear market, yes, but uh, you know, uh, lose a lot of money, probably not.
3: I just want to get your view on credit, Bill. Last year was a big year for equities. Junk, though, just kind of did nothing. It kind of treaded water throughout 2017. Morgan Stanley Wealth yesterday saying we're getting out. We're pairing all of our exposure to high yield debt. What would you do here in the United States in terms of your exposure to high yield.
5: Yeah, I'm not exposed to high yield. Matter of fact, I'm uh, short the uh, HYCDX. Uh, you know, spreads are very, very narrow and they follow the stock market. It's almost a one to four correlation. If the stock market goes up one percent, then uh, spreads in the, the price of the uh, CDX goes up by, uh, you know, by a quarter of that. And so, um, you know, stocks up uh, high yield, spreads down and high yield prices up, uh, there's a certain limit. I mean, uh, high yield yields can't go down below zero. I don't think they can. Um, And and so as we approach uh, lower and lower levels, I think the correlation between stocks and high yield bonds disappears. And yeah, I, I, I think we're overdone here certainly in terms of the low levels of high yield.
0: Very quickly here, Bill Gross, if you're unconstrained And if you say bear market, yes, but we won't lose a lot of money, what is your strategy for 2018 in being Janus Unconstrained?
5: Well, you've got to find the least um, overvalued area. I think almost all assets are overvalued based upon QE and based upon the negative real interest rates that we see around the world. The question is, how long does it continue and which area is the most uh, undervalued relative to the rest. And I I still think it's uh, volatility, Tom. Uh, I'm a seller of volatility in certain areas and currencies in uh, oil and gold. Hasn't worked out in the last uh, week or two. uh, So I'd sell volatility. With us,
0: William Gross of Janus Capital. And as we celebrate our 25th anniversary on Bloomberg Radio, very few of our guests have been as determined uh, to join us as Bill Gross. And we greatly appreciate that over the years. Mr. Gross, when I look at 2.6% down to 2.4% and as you mentioned earlier out to 2.5% right now, as we mentioned, yield up, price down, you are unconstrained. What part of the bond market will harm our listeners most? What is the part of the bond market where you don't want to be?
5: Well, I don't think uh, in the U.S., Tom, I don't think you want uh, anything longer than five years because that's when duration extends and where you get hurt the most if yields go up and prices go down. That's the old teeter-totter. That's what you just yeah. explained. Um, so, so in the U.S., stay away from the longer-term issues. In the world, on a global basis, You know, I'm especially negative not only on bonds, but on Gilts, and let me uh, tell you why. Um, you know the bund spread to Treasuries on a ten-year level is about 203 basis points, and uh, that's where it's been for the past few months, I suppose. But uh, it's a nice pickup, even on a currency hedge basis. Uh, in, in terms of the Japanese yen, you know Japanese investors buy U.S. Treasuries and they hedge them back into JGBs. Uh, uh, right now, you can hedge a ten-year Treasury. You can buy a ten-year Treasury and. Yen terms, hedge it back and pick up 55 basis points, U.S. treasuries versus uh, Japan. And so what I'm saying is that JGBs and bonds and gilts you know, are all uh, much more overvalued than treasuries. And so if I was going to get negative, I wouldn't start with even the longer term uh, side of treasuries. I'd start with uh, bonds, gilts, and JGBs.
0: When I look at this bill and I look at like to make money, it's been a wonderful in I don't mean to diminish it, but everybody's made money. Double-digit stock market return, double-digit bond market return. Are we in for dynamics within the market or malaise within the market? We forget those trading range eras where not much happened. Is that the surprise for this year?
5: Well, I think it is, and for the next uh, several years as well. And it's a setup, Tom. Obviously, if you look at it on a longer-term basis, over the next 10 years with a 10-year Treasury, you're only going to get 2.45%. And is that malaise? I think it probably is, relative to what we've seen in the past. I mean, the the bull market in 1981 that that began with the 30-year Treasury, you know, produced close to double-digit returns, and if investors are expecting that, they're in for a, you know, sorry disappointment. And so, malaise is probably a decent word. I suggested a mild bear market, which, uh, if prices go down on longer-term treasuries, then uh, you're probably getting close to zero or maybe even mm-hmm. a, a minus level, and and so, yeah, bonds are uh, not what they were. And to my way of thinking, you know, once we get through these uh, uh, tax uh, implications. And once we get through the, you know, the the, the push from a fiscal side that uh, perhaps they'll uh, induce, I, I think stocks are in the same uh, kettle because uh, the, the two are tied together like the well, hip bone and the thigh bone.
0: I mean, we made international headlines, you and me, Bill Gross, a few years ago talking about Procter & Gamble's dividend. Can you acquire equity shares at Dow 25,075?
5: Um, yeah, in some cases, uh, you know, utilities yield four percent plus or minus. You can, uh, you know, get levered types of closed-end funds, which I own either on the municipal side or on the corporate side, which yield uh, municipal-wise five uh, percent and corporate-wise about eight percent. And so, um, if those are considered. Equities, yes, you can do that, and mm-hmm. uh, you know a, a decent dividend with AT&T or Verizon, you know, in the four to five percent category, yes, you can. But uh, mm-hmm. certainly the industrials and the high tech, uh, you know, don't produce that. They depend right. on growth, and it's growth that's driving this.
0: Let's go back to the central bank. Our Michael McKee just spoke with James Bullard of St. Louis, as you well know, Bill Gross. He's been an outlier. He was really heated about the idea of we don't have to raise rates right now. I don't want to put words in Mr. Bullard's mouth, but that was a tone. You mentioned Mr. Kashkari. Is Chairman Powell going to be Chairman Yellen? And are they way out front on raising rates?
5: No, I don't think so and you know I've been uh, so I'm sort of uh for uh, clumped here I guess in in terms of this issue I think that savers have been disadvantaged uh, for the past uh, 5 years in terms of negative real interest rates and I think in order for our economy to adjust ultimately that the real rate has to move up to at least 0 and so that would you know, mean a, a rise of 25, 50, 75 basis points. So I'm for that. But, but I do think that Kashkari has a point uh, that you can't raise it too high, that it's a highly levered economy and, you know, things have to be just right in terms of Goldilocks in order to uh, keep us going at these levels. And so, yeah, 50 to 75 basis points, and if that's what the Fed has built in, mm-hmm. the market is a little bit less, um, you know, that, that's fine. But uh, I'm with Kashkari when you start to exceed two
0: to the two and a quarter percent we will of course are jargon free here at bloomberg surveillance mr gross using a word for clumped, which is from the Yiddish, and it's too emotional to speak. Bill Gross, too emotional to speak about too much of Fed uh, policy. What's your exogenous shock for this year, Bill? As you know, one day you walk in the office and things can change. What's the exogenous shock you're attuned to right now? I'm thinking Italian elections, something in China. Maybe it's the idea the San Francisco 49ers are going to win every game with Jimmy (laughs) until forever. What's the exogenous shock that has your attention?
5: Well, politics and geopolitics uh, are always important and hard to predict. Uh, And I've been early and constant, I guess, in terms of my fear of uh, China and uh, its leverage. You know, whenever you have a problem, and we had that in the Great Recession, and all recessions prior to that, it's been a function of leverage and an interest rate that uh, isn't matched to that increase in leverage. And certainly that's the case in China. There's arguments that uh, say that they can take care of that. They have trillions of dollars of reserves and the state can take care of uh, smaller companies. But I I worry about it. In- Uh, I worry about leverage in China Mm -hmm. and how it will be resolved. And and so I I look for that at some point to create a problem.
0: What do we need to do in Washington to find stability? I assume you did not get an advanced copy of Mr. Wolf's book, Fire and Fury. I believe it's out in six minutes on Kindle on Amazon. But uh, Bill Gross, the last 24 hours have been crazy. Some would say the last year has been crazy. Do you need a more stable Washington or do you ignore the follies? Well, the market has
5: been ignoring it, right? Uh, all of the events with uh, North Korea and all of the tweets, uh, wherever they go, you know, seem to be ignored now. But I, I think, uh, I think we do. I mean, stability in Washington, stability in government is an important factor long-term in terms of markets, and and so uh, markets and prices for markets are dependent upon. You know, less volatility, that's really what the Fed's been trying to do on the monetary side. Yeah, let's see some stability in mm-hmm. Washington in terms of policy, uh, and w- we might just you know, be able to maintain these levels in terms of uh, risk asset prices.
0: Bill Gross, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. He's with Janus Capital, generous of his time uh, this morning. And. Here is John
3: Farrow. administration's views on the jobs report. We're now joined on Bloomberg television and radio from Washington by Gary Cohn, National Economic Council Director. Gary, it's always great to catch up with you, sir, so thank you very much for giving us your time. Let's start with a payrolls report. A slight disappointment, but I just wonder whether we've got to start getting used to numbers well south of 200K. What are your thoughts? So, Jonathan, thanks for having me. No, look, I, I don't think we should get used to
6: numbers below 200K. I think what we're seeing here is a continuation of a trend that we've seen in the retail industry, and that's something you know that we've got to get used to. You know, had had we had a traditional um, in-store retail Christmas, and we would have added the traditional twenty or thirty thousand jobs in-store retail versus losing twenty thousand jobs in retail for for the month, we would have had a two hundred thousand number again. So if you really that that's the one number in here that I think a lot of people missed. You obviously saw some numbers come back in the transportation sector and the driving sector. You heard from some of the transportation logistics companies that yeah. they couldn't hire enough people. They actually had managers out de- delivering and driving trucks because they couldn't c- put people on fast enough. But no, we, we see the economy continuously growing and, con- and, and continuously adding jobs on. And remember, tax reform is now five days old. And the input that that's going to have into the economy is just starting, just barely starting to have an effect. Well,
3: Gary, let's talk about the initial reaction of corporate America to to the tax cut. The tax cut is permanent, but what I'm seeing is companies to choose to pay one-off bonuses. Are you disappointed by that, that they take a permanent tax cut and just give a one-off bonus?
6: Look, I, I don't think that's completely true. I think companies have chosen to do a lot of different things. You did see a lot of companies raise minimum wages up to 15, 15.50 an hour for their lowest wage workers, which is exactly what we wanted to see. Those, those changes in the minimum wage workers it, 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 the, in these companies are permanent changes to the wage system. As the economy continues to grow and as the labor force continues to tighten, remember, Unemployment rate is still 4.1%. It's yeah. 17 year lows. We are going to see real wage pressure in here. I've been telling you for the last year that the one disappointing number that we see month after month after month is we saw wage growth of two and a half percent against CPI of 2.2. So you see a real wage growth in here at three tenths of percent. That's just not good enough, and we are committed to get real wage growth in this country, and we do believe you will see it over the course of the next year or two.
3: And to be fair, Gary, you've owned that, but I wonder whether you support the following thing: New York and California are looking to shield their residents from. From the loss of state and local tax deductions if they can do that is that something actually your administration would support look
6: i i i've read the articles of what they're trying to do i mean i understand what they're trying to do for their for their cities and their states and their taxpayers we at the federal government still have to collect revenue so we're going to have to evaluate what decisions they make in in terms of what it does for overall collections at the federal level in the federal tax system.
3: So what would happen, Gary, if they were able to do that? Would that put you in a little bit of a troublesome spot where you'd actually actually think about where you could raise revenue elsewhere? Look,
6: you know, we'll, we'll deal with it when we have to. Hopefully, we'll grow the economy fast enough that the tax revenues will exceed everyone's expectation based on economic growth. That would be the ultimate answer. That's the answer that we're looking for. We're looking for capital reinvestment. We're looking for businesses to return for, to America. We're looking for people to spend money and hire people so we can tax a broader economy. That's the right answer for every American to grow jobs at every level, yeah. to grow incomes at every level and tax, more of the econ- and tax more of the economy at a lower rate.
3: Gary, that would be beautiful, of course, if growth paid for all of this. So caught up- with the former Treasury Secretary Jack Lew earlier in the week. He thinks actually the United States runs the risk of, of going broke. That is a pretty dramatic statement. Uh, what do you say back to it?
6: Look, what, what I say back to him is, he, is they had their chance of running the economy. And when they ran it during the Obama administration, I think they added billions upon, I'm sorry, trillions upon trillions of dollars of debt. Yeah. We, we come in with $20 trillion of debt. Um, you're going to have to judge us on what we do. We're pretty, we're pretty optimistic what we can do here.
3: Well, the President of the United States would like us to, to judge us on the, uh, on the market reaction, the Dow through 25,000, celebrating that. Gary, would you caution the President to be a little bit careful at these kind of levels of owning the upside? Are you prepared to own the downside as well? Look, I was just listening
6: to Bob Dahl. Hi, Bob, how are you? And, <laughs> and I, I agree, I agree with, with, with everything he was saying. If you look at what's going on in the stock market, the stock market is a reflection of what is going on in the global economies, what companies are doing from an earnings perspective. And again, I'm not sure people really understand the effect of tax reform in the stock market, and we have yet to see the capital expenditure that's going to come through for five years of expensing. I think the stock market and some other pretty famous investors over the last 24, 48 hours have agreed with
3: us that the stock market is not expensive right now. Gary, let's make some news. When can I find out who the next vice chair of the Federal Reserve is going to be? Do I get it before the end of the month?
6: Um,
3: Possibly, but I wouldn't bet on it. What about market deregulation for the banks, the financials? When are we going to take some concrete steps? Is it a story of less regulation or a story of no more regulation?
6: Um, it, 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 so, so, so we, we are making enormous progress on a bipartisan basis on bank deregulation. We've, we've got a bill in the Senate that has bipartisan support to really change the regulatory environment for the vast, vast majority of banks in the United States. Yeah. And, and that is going to see floor time hopefully in January, and we can get that bill through Congress um, in the first quarter of this year, which is going to really free up you know, the vast majority of banks in the United States to get back to their core business and serving their communities and serving their customers.
3: Gary, my Bloomberg Radio co-anchor Tom Keene and myself, we having a conversation a little bit earlier about confidence on Wall Street. And we thought about the current battle between the President of the United States and, and Mr. Bannon. Is confidence being lost at this point? You talked to me about how difficult it is to work in the White House currently. The perception is there's a lot of drama to kick off 2018. What's the reality, Gary? The reality is the White House is, is, is operating smoothly. Everything's going well. Look at what we
6: just accomplished. Let, let's look at the facts. We just signed literally the last working day in the White House of last year. It's less than two weeks ago. We just signed major tax reform simplification, something that has not been done for 31 years. We got that done in the White House with the president's leadership. Yeah. Think about that. That tells you how the White House is operating. We're now working aggressively on our new plan for this year. We've got a big meeting at Camp David this weekend with the legislative leaders, where we're gonna map out our legislative plan for for 2018. I think we're working quite effectively and efficiently.
3: Hey Gary, just to, to wrap things up, a lot of we in that last statement, and there was a lot of people on Wall Street that expected you to kind of like fade away and disappear after the tax bill got signed, still delivered. Is it going to be we for a long, long time? Are you sticking with this for the long run down in uh, Washington, D.C.? Look, there's a lot to be
6: done on the economic agenda. President Trump has a very strong view on how we can drive this economy. And I'm happy to be proud of his economic plan. Is that a yes then, Gary? You're sticking with it? I'm I'm, I'm, I'm happy to be part of his economic agenda.
3: Okay, we're not getting an answer, are we? (laughs) Gary Cohn, (laughs) it's always great to catch up with you. U.S. National Economic Council director. Thank you, sir.